semi-auto tire iron. Uh, fully auto. Oh, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> Duh. Come on, system mastery. <laughs> comment section in new york city i'm your host shane and i'm your host ishan and welcome to episode 56 of total party thrill a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours in this episode we're talking about the joy of teenage gamers and the bane of adults system mastery but first the party deals with the fallout of a disjunction bomb in the morning glory campaign and later the polymorph fromage uh, cheeses their way through any challenge in the character creation forge so just a reminder before we get started, we are still running our contest. We are giving away a copy of Pathfinder Horror Adventures, our own review copy. Yeah, it seems a bit odd to benefit off getting this swag from publicists. So instead, you will benefit. All you have to do is help new listeners find the show by giving us a five-star review on iTunes. We ask for them every episode, and now we're offering a bribe. If you leave us a five-star review on iTunes between now and August 31st, you'll be entered in the contest and if you've already left us a review we aren't leaving you out all you need to do is send an email to totalpartythrill at gmail.com with the subject contest and the name of your itunes account and you're entered as well and remember that we don't have contact info for people on itunes so if you do leave us a review go ahead and just shoot us an email and let us know where we can get in touch with you in case you win and we will announce the winner on the september 8th episode good luck okay so it's been out for a little while we haven't had a chance to talk about it Plane Shift Innistrad, the second in the series of Magic the Gathering tie-in content for D&D 5e. Yes, it's basically a sequel of sorts to the Plane Shift Zendikar, which we liked. It's kind of new content for D&D, which we don't often get. It happens to be tied to a Magic the Gathering setting. So, you know, if you play Magic, great for you. And if you don't, you know, it's okay. Like the setting's fine. Yeah, the art is gorgeous. Everyone can appreciate the magic art. <laughs> <laughs> Why can't we get this art? Well, we have some of the same artists. Yeah. Just, we just don't get the good art. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, D&D has good art overall, but I, there there are a lot of pieces in, in Estrada that I looked at, and I was just like, wow. Wow. That's my character. I, I want to play that guy. Yeah. So if you're not familiar with Innistrad, it's basically Ravenloft. Uh, in fact, there's even a section at the end of this 40-page PDF slash art book that tells you how you can play Curse of Strahd in Innistrad because they're so similar, this gothic horror. Yeah, Barovia, Innistrad, reskin some things lightly. You know, I think it, it's clear that Barovia was a big inspiration for the magic lore behind it. But there's it, it just maps pretty much one-to-one for what organizations and groups and peoples that you need from Innistrad to play Curse of Strahd there. Aside from pretty interesting lore that you can use for your Ravenloft or really any gothic horror kind of game, there is a bit of crunch. There are a few monsters, mostly low level, uh, but that are still pretty challenging for characters of that level. Some of them are adapted directly from monsters in the D&D 5e monster manual with slight tweaks to make them fit into Innistrad. Some of them have been powered down a little bit. You have a fifth level vampire, which is actually, I think, a really interesting offering for GMs who are not playing in Innistrad who want to be able to introduce vampires before CR 13. 
Yeah, there's a reskinning of the Intellect Devourer that I really liked. It's a child's toy, like a, a cursed doll <laughs> that tries to eat your brain. And I think it's actually more useful than the original Intellect Devourer because one of the big problems is that it's CR2 and it just kills you. Yeah. You know, if, like it'll murder your fighter. Yeah, if it starts to eat your brain, you're done. It's just game over at low level. But, I mean, you could go get that wish, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're out of the campaign. Right, yeah. <laughs> but the doll doesn't kill you permanently. In fact, there is an opportunity to exercise it. Right, yeah. So it's a little more useful. It's, it's stuff like that. It's pretty cool. There's also four human variants that they've built um, reflecting the different peoples of Innistrad. I liked it because as we looked at it, we just realized they just took the variant human and locked in the skill, the feat, and then the ability score increase. So it's all balanced. Yeah. And the base human is still terrible, just like in the regular game. Yeah. If you're a Gavoni, whatever that is, safe behind the walls of the high city of Thraben, you suck. <laughs> <laughs> you should move. Yeah. <laughs> you have no skill. Grow up someplace cooler. <laughs> I will say, as a GM who wants to homebrew more material for 5e, take a look at the human variants and the way that they take a feat, break it into its constituent parts, and then rename them. Uh, I think that's really interesting and a nice guideline for what you can do on your own to give something really flavorful to uh, your players. Yeah, and you don't have to worry about balance because you follow the formula. There's also a background for Inquisitors, which was of particular interest to me as somebody who spent a long time playing an Inquisitor. You were kind of tearing your hair out when you saw it. What? Now? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I totally would have used this. Its background feature is you have the authority to arrest criminals, even if you're out of your jurisdiction or whatever. In the absence of you know constables or whomever, you can just arrest them. I think that's great. You just pass judgment on your own. And it does bear the caveat, don't abuse this. But you're an Inquisitor, so you will. Yeah, if you look at the table for the personality traits, ideals, bond, flaw, uh, if you notice under the ideal of punishment, which is the evil ideal, it's better for the innocent to suffer than for the guilty to escape their due. I love it. It's got my heart. <laughs> <laughs> but what about in a game instead of real life? Oh, well, no. Characters should all be noble and bright. Okay, cool. So it's available as a free PDF, so there's no reason not to pick it up, take a look at it, and you know use it if necessary. Plus, it's just beautiful. Yeah, like I said, just pick it up for the art. There's a ton of inspirational art in here, uh, especially if you're like me and like Inquisitorial-type characters because there's a couple great Holy Inquisitor-type guys. Yeah, and this kind of release is heavily weighted toward portraits, which is usually something that's pretty hard to find, especially if you are a player who's looking for an image of what your character actually looks like and looks cool. Yeah, I think two or three times in this I went, oh, that's brand. Oh, wait, no, that's brand. Wait, I want everything to be brand. <laughs> All right. So last week in the Morning Glory campaign, the party recovered a strange device from Merrick's to Caneth. They consulted with the... Planetar Sage Troan and New Metrol and determined that it was a disjunction bomb which could be used to return the nation of Seer to the continent of Corvair. So they traveled to the Mornland, to the site of their battle with Raltul Kesh in front of the Ruin Library in the ruins of Metrol. They set the bomb. They all teleported away except for Bahar who stood there making sure that it worked. And it did. It exploded, it released the dimensional anchor, and the dead gray mists faded away as the 
worse for wear, the nation of Seer slowly faded back into existence. Cool. So then we lived happily ever after, right? That's exactly what happened. Yes. Uh, except, but not. <laughs> yeah, except uh, one relatively important person. One one important relative. <laughs> yeah, one, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so the party picks up Bahar and then goes to New Metro, you know, for the ticker tape parade, obviously. Right. But people are a bit dour there because as they walk in, they say, we have saved all of you. And the Archangel Cocabiel says, well... Except for Kalad Kenneth, the daughter of Kalik, the paladin. Yeah, presumably there were other people who died alongside her. Yeah, but, you know. But, like, no one, everyone knew we didn't care about those Yeah, people. they're red shirts. Who cares? Yeah. <laughs> she was a named NPC. Right. <laughs> so, when we had gone to consult the planetar in New Metro, in the combined plane of Dolor and Maybar, there was a, an undead incursion that was kind of ongoing, right? The The city was under siege. We knew that they were fighting, but when we returned to our world, we knew that we were rather expended in terms of our capabilities, and so we had decided to rest to play it safe in case something unexpected happens when we unleash the disjunction bomb. The party as a whole had decided to rest. Right. Uh, after spirited debate. Yes, because the party knew that there was time slippage between the two dimensions, that one night of resting here on the material plane could be much longer in New Metro. And since they knew they were under an undead siege, they, well, Kallik at least, was worried what might happen to his daughter. And he was right to be worried. She died repelling the undead invasion. And uh, he never really forgave us. <laughs> you know... He was certainly upset about it. Um, I like that it, it drove home that there were consequences to your actions. I also like that even now, like a year and a half later, you, Shane, and Jim, the, Jim in real life, still argue about what was the right decision. I maintain it was right. <laughs> and he maintains it was wrong. <laughs> so, and then, I mean, that that actually set up a very personal angle for a campaign that was Save the World. To a degree, we all wanted to save the world because we all live in the world. But now there was actually personal loss that was very tightly tied to the outcome of our campaign, right? If uh, if Kallik was unsuccessful, then his daughter had died in vain. And of course, Kallik being the vengeance paladin that he was, that also meant he hated us now. <laughs> and the already competing agendas, the already sort of... Um, withering trust within the party got ramped up to 11 just because he felt that he had paid the price for our mistake he did well yeah well m mistake mistake uh, right mistake mistake <laughs> right. i mean you break a few eggs <laughs> i like that the direction that jim took it was that it honed calic's will right his desire to actually make sure that the world did get saved because he had already given up so much for it. You know, it's like you wait 10 minutes for the elevator. You're going to wait 20 minutes for the elevator. Yeah. Sunk cost. It was a sunk cost. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I mean, it colored all of our decisions going forward, right? Because he questioned everybody's motivations from then on, right? Everybody's secret agenda. Or at least their judgment, certainly. Well, yeah. But everybody's private agenda and, and, and personal motivation got called into question every time we had a big decision point, mm -hmm. uh, which <laughs> was fun to navigate. I think I lucked out a little bit here as a GM because I had, I had had Kala give Kalik his, like his wife's sword, his dead wife's sword, 
which was sentient and you know had been sort of beholden to to his wife and he was trying to live up to its ideals you know because he had been lawful neutral and not particularly good because he was a vengeance paladin and then he had recommitted himself to you know order of devotion you know being a shining beacon of justice and goodness uh, and he was really trying hard to convince the sword that like he was he was as good as his wife had been and the sword was was really not convinced <laughs> yeah <laughs> so he still had a, a motivation not to descend into vengeance again and i think for jim the player certainly his arc had been you know despair and then a, a hard pivot when he realizes that like he still has a family and now for his arc to swing back and sort of this hairpin turn wasn't something that he was really interested in so he was able to take this and then use it as motivation to continue the the arc toward like justice if not necessarily like goodness and happiness in terms of a personal story uh, the hero's journey type thing if he had still continued on his path to become good simply because he was trying to live up to external expectations, then he wouldn't have ever become good, right? He needed to lose those outside influences in order to actually become a good person for the merit of good itself. Look, I'm not Jim. You can save it for him, okay? <laughs> really, I was helping you. Uh, yeah, no, just helping make a better story, you know? Oh, right, okay. Also neutral greater good. <laughs> so... The party is in New Metrol there with Queen Danelle and the host of angels that run the city. And suddenly, the communication devices that have been silent for, from their perspective, 25 years begin to flutter with incoming messages from all across Corvair, from all of the other courts and all of the other nations saying, oh my god, you're back. And we'll find out what happens next, next week. So this week, we're talking about system mastery. Chain what? What is System Mastery? I believe it's the publisher of the short-lived Duckman RPG. Oh, right. Yes, we are going to have a review of that now for the next 40 minutes. It's also a podcast that reviews old RPGs. Also true. Or it's also a term that's used to describe in-depth knowledge of the rules and mechanics for a given RPG system. It includes familiarity with the assumptions of the system and the quirks that you really want to be aware of before you try running a game with that system or playing a character. So, for example, the GM who can instantly recall all those crazy skill DCs from the 3.5 epic level handbook, they have system mastery. Or the rules lawyer who's memorized the whole monster manual, they have system mastery. The player who pours through equipment lists to determine whether you should buy the adventurer's pack or you should buy items a la carte because you don't necessarily need all of those, they have system mastery. They probably also have too much time on their hands. Definitely have too much time on their hands. <laughs> you know, this also applies to things like feet trees and mm -hmm. you know, understanding within a given game that the survival skill doesn't come up very often in D&D. &D, so it's not as important as, say, the persuasion skill. Right? right, or knowing that perception is king. Right, or, or knowing that dex is the god stat. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, think about like second edition. It sounded great to invest really heavily in charisma, except that nothing good used charisma. Yeah. <laughs> you were going to die. Right. It's knowing that bards and fighters don't work in 3.5. Mm -hmm. <laughs> System mastery is the thing that prevents you from showing up to a 3.5 game and going, oh, I've got this great idea for this like fighter-bard combo, and like they're going to sing, and they're going to be really awesome they're going to be like this swashbuckler that's going to dance through combat and like they're not going to get hit and then they're going to have like this witty repartee 
it prevents you from doing that because that doesn't work in 3.5. Right. It's going to be a terrible character. It's also the thing that lets you gently tell other people that maybe their concept would be better suited with a different combination of classes that will actually be able to function at higher level. Yeah, it's also the Pathfinder Society player who knows you always take a wand of healing at the beginning of character creation because uh, because if you die in Pathfinder Society, you go back to level one. <laughs> so not dying is the most important thing you can do in Pathfinder Society. So the key word of system mastery is system. Mm-hmm. So we can't really talk about this without sort of identifying the range of systems that sort of fall into their their level of system mastery required. Right, because there's a bit of crossover. You know, if you have experience with 3.5 D&D, it's easier to pick up 5e. But it definitely does not mean that the system mastery then transfers over. And some, In fact, sometimes it screws you up because you're remembering rules from a different system. Yeah, you're making assumptions about rules that are no longer valid. So what would you say are some systems that require system mastery, that in order to play them and actually engage with the system the way the designers intend and not like get so frustrated that you're ripping pages out of books because like you can't figure out how to play this stupid game or why you can't hit oh you played 4e (laughs) before the patch (laughs) yeah we've mentioned D&D multiple times now I think 5e is probably the version of the game that requires the least system mastery thus far but 4e certainly required it because you later on had these feet taxes that you needed to take in order to really be effective. And if you didn't, you just didn't really understand why like you couldn't hit or, or land your spells. Yeah, the math was so tight. If you didn't have a certain bonus on your attempt to hit, you basically couldn't hit. You were no longer in the, the normal range of your chances of success. And there was nothing in the book, like as a new player, that you could open and then it would say, you know, make sure you take these these feats. Well, there was in like the DMG3, right? I, I, like when they when they I finally said you two. don't when you don't need magic items you just give them a bonus up to this so that it, the math works and that was like oh we need these bonuses to, for the math oh it work. was inherent bonuses right that yeah. was an, an alternate way of playing without magic items but yeah I think that's people started to, to crunch it a bit and then they kept coming out with new versions of these feats that they just would throw on really cool writers too so people would hopefully just sort of take them anyway but of course if you remember from 3.5 when you have a ton of splat books as a, a new player, you don't know where to look for these things. Right. You don't have access to every single one of these books. So you're mostly just stuck with a PHP. So 3.5 had a lot of system mastery issues as well, mm-hmm. you know, where you just had no idea that a decision you made at level three was going to really hurt your character at level 11. Yep. And Pathfinder suffers from some of the same problems. And there's also just lots of these older systems that have bloat in their mechanics mm-hmm. newer options creep and so there's just better options available now but really i mean this applies to most of the ogl just mm-hmm. because of the bones <laughs> that it was built on with uh with third edition it just lends itself to system mastery being required yeah it affects a lot of these sort of very crunchy very granular systems gurps comes to mind you you need certain <laughs> certain things to survive People don't know that the halitosis flaw is basically free points. Right. If you're not maxing your flaws, man, your character's not strong enough. Well, think about Savage Worlds. If you're not maxing your flaws, you are not strong enough. That's true. So a system that we have recently started playing with that actually inspired me wanting to discuss system mastery with my frustration was Mutants and Masterminds 3rd Edition, which is all point by 
but it's still built on loosely an OGL frame. So we're not saying it's a bad system. We're not saying any of these are bad systems, but Mutants and Masterminds 3rd Edition does require a level of familiarity before building a character, or otherwise you're just going to get one-shotted by by enemies yeah i'll say it's not a bad system it's poorly written because it doesn't it doesn't share these assumptions with players at any point that makes it abundantly clear and it it gives you many opportunities to make bad decisions yeah i'm the only one in the group who's actually played mutants and masterminds before i played second edition and still i was often very lost yeah so it's it's things like if there are two ways to get to the same bonus one way will be just cheaper Right. If I could increase a skill or I could increase an attribute, the attribute is more expensive and the skill gives me the exact same effect and I get capped anyway. So like if I can't get past a plus eighteen, well then it does I, I am just trying to get to the cheapest way to plus eighteen and I don't actually care which one I do, right? Right. Defenses need to be at a certain level and if you're like a superhero with like superpowers that's pretty easy to do. You just make yourself really tough. But if you are a superhero who doesn't have superpowers, Batman, say, for instance, there is a particular ability that you can take that sort of mimics that, you know, defensive role, you jump out of the way. But I think maybe it's mentioned in one place in the book that this is how characters that don't have superpowers actually can survive. Like this is the thing you must take in order not to get hit constantly. Uh, And it's, actually just worse yeah because you have potential to lose that ability whereas with the stamina trait you just can't lose it right so flat-footed you lose your defensive role but flat-footed you're still tough (laughs) so no one cares now some systems benefit much less from system mastery these are usually the rules light type of games think dungeon world or fate yeah even though fate is actually kind of crunchy from a from a character construction standpoint, it doesn't have all these complex interactions between mechanics. So you don't have that need to, to min-max every little bonus uh, in order to hit some target number because at the end of the day, the majority of the crunch comes from the aspects that are on the table, not necessarily the powers that are applied to your character sheet. Right, and in-game while you're playing, the adjudication it tends to be a little more hand wavy with many of these rules light kind of games so it's much less about what is the exact bonus that you have yeah whether you attack with a tire iron or you attack with a gun in fate you're still just rolling an attack and then there's the majority of systems kind of fall into this middle ground where there's benefits for having system mastery but the system is still mostly playable as the designers intended without really digging into that level of mastery right there are fewer traps trap options they're typically called yeah though they sometimes have them like Mm -hmm. savage worlds like you mentioned right at character creation you have to take broad skills you can't focus at character creation because it's just more expensive to learn new stuff later and while you can just pick up dnd 5e and build a character pretty easily it's certainly helpful to know for example what kind of class you should be starting with what you should take at first level because that gives you different proficiencies or what the expectations for power are at, at different tiers, which are in the book, but require you to read the book pretty thoroughly to find them. Yeah, that's one thing for D&D 5e, is if you play without multiclassing, it's very hard to screw up a character. Mm-hmm. It's when you introduce multiclassing and feats are sort of the, the level of complexity that screws things up and gets some benefit from system mastery. Uh, there's also newer games like Cypher System, like Phoenix Dawn Command, where 
knowing little quirks of the rules can be helpful, but in general, any decision you make is going to mostly work. Mm -hmm. But certainly they still benefit from knowing the rules very well. Yeah, so how about Edge of the Empire or the the FFG Star Wars systems in general? I think it's middle of the road. I I think it benefits from System Mastery less than something like Dark Heresy 2nd Edition, which really benefits from understanding the rules and you know how things play out in combat and in character creation that's only if you want to live oh well eh. (laughs) (laughs) edge of the empire it's one of these fancy like games that has odd dice it doesn't use normal polyhedral dice and i think it helps a lot just having a good amount of familiarity with what the symbols mean, not just in terms of calculating what your result was, but interpreting them in a story kind of way, having having that level of practice, and then being familiar enough with the rule book to understand what the expectations are within the story for certain results. Yeah, so knowing how to spend a certain number of advantages to create different effects in the story, right, is, a, is just a straight you know it or you don't Mm -hmm. (laughs) and it's just easier to play if you know how that works but then there's also ways to add bonuses to the things that you do through mechanical decisions that you make in your character creation right so it is kind of a blend of both but because the dice determines so much and it's it's so non-binary right there's such a, a broad number of outcomes you can succeed but have a bunch of different disadvantages that apply to you right so you succeed with a huge cost you could also fail but create a bunch of advantages for yourself and then you got every little permutation in between of success and failure it gives you so much more leeway in how to interpret it it doesn't feel like mechanical choices are so critical and because that's so different from the kinds of results you usually get in rpgs you know you roll a number you succeed or you fail or you succeed with a number of degrees of success and or fail with a number of degrees because this is so different it does take a certain level of familiarity to really understand that it is different and and that you need to respond to these results in ways that you wouldn't in other games okay so when is system mastery good when is it bad when is it required we had a bit of a disagreement on this but maybe that was just a definition in terms i was basically saying it's hardly ever required because we all remember the games when you know a bunch of 14-year-olds got together in someone's basement and nobody understood what they were doing and you just broke out a rule book, you kind of looked at some stuff that looked cool, you threw something together and like you had a great time. Yeah, so that's true. If your goal is fun, I agree. You can have fun without knowing what you're doing. <laughs> but if you want to play the game the way the designers intend it, right, I, I think there are times when it's required. And, and that's c- kind of what we talked about with the systems previously. It's, it's kind of like sex. Hmm? What? You can have fun if you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> okay, yeah, but it's better if you <laughs> But do. it's better if you understand what the designers are going for. Uh, <laughs> system mastery is beneficial. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it can do a lot to enhance a session, right, if everybody understands these nuances. First of all, it makes it much easier to plan. You can cut down your prep time a lot. <laughs> well, one, you're not reading the entire book first. Right. <laughs> You know what sections of the book you can ignore that you don't need to look up. And you also know what's fudgeable. You know, like almost every system has a set number of steps that you're supposed to go through in order to prep a session or create an encounter or an adventure. But those are never all necessary. 
nor are they even all actually beneficial. You know, sometimes they're actually poorly written. But if you've actually created uh, adventures and, and prepped sessions before, you know, one, what works for the system and two, what works for you and this system. So it happens much more quickly. I got to a point in fourth edition where I didn't need to do any prep. I could show up with some dice, jot a few numbers on a page, and then we could go from there and it would work fine. Now, 4E is easier to GM than most other systems, but that required a a very high level of system mastery. Yeah, it also lets you do things a little more open-ended. When you're starting out in D&D, right, it's easy to recommend that you have a dungeon delve because it puts four walls around the characters and the options available to them are on their sheet. Mm -hmm. As you get higher level in D&D, as you get sort of broader story types in D&D, you can do more things, but you have to react to a much bigger variety of actions that the players can take. Teleport. Yeah, teleport will throw things, you know, (laughs) things like legend lore or speak with dead, right? Your murder mystery isn't very exciting if you can just go speak with dead. (laughs) Like, hey man, who killed you? (laughs) Well, if you didn't know that was going to happen, if you didn't have a plan for that, now you could be in trouble. So understanding those capabilities is, is critical to making these sort of more open sessions work. Uh, heists are another example. It was mm-hmm. the very first episode we did was talking about how you prep for a heist. Yeah, and we mentioned that it is so much easier to plan if you really understand the mechanics of the system that you're working with. If you're familiar with the options for defenses that the vault might have, the magic items that they might employ, if you understand how players can actually infiltrate and what options they have, if you understand and can repeat the stealth rules to your players who are going to want to use them most likely. And if you're very familiar with the spell effects that your players are likely to bring to the table or, you know, how hacking works, whatever. Right. And I'd say in the best scenarios, system mastery keeps the game from getting bogged down in minutia. You know, you don't need to stop every couple of minutes for someone to look up exactly how much damage falling does. People understand they already know it. And not everyone needs the system mastery, and the GM doesn't necessarily need to have it either. I really like to have one rules lawyer at the table who like knows the system inside and out, who you can just point to and go, wait, so what are the DCs for this thing? Oh, okay, great. That player spits out the relevant info, and then play can move on. Yeah, how does grappling work? Cool, moving go. on. <laughs> <laughs> the answer is don't do it. Okay, moving on. It doesn't. Do something else. Great. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I'll attack. <laughs> I could sit here for 30 minutes and explain it. No, 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 we're good. Yeah, it also lets you adjudicate things much easier and without the sort of session-ruining mistakes, right, or even campaign-ruining mistakes where you read the horror story on a forum later about how the GM let the wizard do this and then everything went downhill from there. You know, you, you can avoid that up front. Yeah, or avoids petty squabbles. Like the story that's been going around recently about whether or not you can drink a potion underwater one-handed. I love this story. (laughs) This story disappoints me that our group never had this problem. (laughs) Because we have system mastery. (laughs) Because we say, yes, yes, you can. Why is that a problem? I don't make you roll a check every time you're eating to make sure you don't choke on your food and die. Yeah, but I mean, is it actually physically possible to to drink a potion (laughs) underwater? I've never thought about this. Is there is there an intake of breath that's critical to drinking? I don't know. I've never tried. You've never drank underwater? No. Oh. You've never had a beer in a swimming pool underwater? I had a beer in the shower. Oh, that's very different. And you just get water in, in the beer. You got to like lift it above the water. Yeah, I, I don't like that. 
Okay. I mean, my shower my, beer my works for me. My favorite thing, so. for the most part, you know, you drop your open beer, you know, bottle into the pool and it bounces up pretty quickly and then floats. It's really nice. What? <laughs> yeah, okay, don't do that. You don't actually get any chlorinated don't, water in don't there. Don't get water in your beer. If you don't. You don't. It's totally fine. Maybe I was too drunk to know. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> which was disinfecting which? I'm not sure. Definitely don't do that in a pool in Rio. Oh, yeah, okay. Fair. But of course, on the flip side, in the worst case scenarios, play gets mired in these rules arguments or people with system mastery getting too pedantic about clarifications with people who don't have system mastery about things that really don't matter. Like, it's a fun story for us to hear now about, oh, could he drink a potion underwater? But that session that they had where they were arguing about whether or not it could be done was probably really boring. Yeah, and it probably ended with somebody going, okay, then I'll spend 10 feet of movement to go to the surface. I'll drink it as a free action. I'll spend 10 feet of movement to go back where I was, and then I'll do something else because I'm not wasting an action trying to figure this out. <laughs> Moving on, <laughs> right? <laughs> System mastered. <That's> right. <laughs> and now some guy get in his bathtub and test this. Okay, so what are the benefits for players? Like, why, as a player, do I want to put the time in to learn all the complicated rules of D&D 5e? So that you can play the character that you want to play rather than the character that sounds like the character you character that you want to play but then turns out to be nothing like it. That is everything to me, and that's why we have the character creation forge, mm-hmm. right? Is here's an idea for a character. Let's make that character work, not just let's build the most powerful character. Let's build the most... Uh, broken character it's about understanding how to make a character concept fun when you're actually rolling the dice right is it going to feel like this character when i'm actually playing the game right because the thing is you can get all of the abilities nominally of the character you're looking for right but if you're not actually good at doing any of them you still won't be batman yeah it's why we get so angry about poorly named class features or subclasses that are terrible because if you want to play a mastermind don't take the mastermind rogue subclass because you will be awful at being a mastermind right (laughs) i forgot about the mastermind right (laughs) i blocked it from my memory (laughs) right out and if you want to be a master of beasts don't be a beast master ranger right Uh, if you want a pet well, in 5e, you're out of luck, but you're better off building from your wizard familiar or something. Yeah, or warlock, warlock familiar. Yeah. yeah. And these are the kinds of things that sort of upset us because this is a small hobby and you want to be able to very easily bring in new people. So, you know, having a system that requires less system mastery makes it easier to get those new people in. But having someone who understands and can explain things that may not be readily apparent to new players means that those people are going to have more fun earlier and they're more likely to stick with the hobby. Yep. It's one of the reasons I got into character creation in the first place was back in 3.5. You really needed to optimize your characters, your melee characters, just to make them do anything useful. Yeah, unless you wanted to roll a handful of D20s and miss on all of them. (laughs) I think also when you've been playing RPGs for a long time, having and using system mastery adds another dimension to the game so you can experience the game as a role-playing game you're inhabiting this character and you're talking like you're them and you're making decisions based on what they would do given the circumstances they're faced with but then you can also view it 
more tactically and you can say okay i have these abilities they require these kinds of actions you know what is on a meta level the best or most interesting thing that my character could do and then how is that then expressed in game that's something that i find really enjoyable yeah it's kind of a more gamist approach to it and i like being able to step back and forth okay i'm going to make this decision based solely on how does murmur the tiefling feel about this particular scenario yeah and then sometimes i can step back and be like ah well murmur's a wizard and in wizarding school he learned that you don't combine these two spells because that's a bad idea in game it's a bad idea because like they don't work together they don't work yeah right <laughs> mechanically like, it's a bad idea because like what they're both concentration spells and like, you can't do two things at the same time yeah it's also good to know when you make decisions what the cost of that decision is right what are you giving up when you do it and so you can understand if you understand what the likely outcome of your options are you can understand what you're giving up and then you know is that really in character for me mm-hmm. right would i take this risk or am i not really understanding the risk that i'm taking because i don't quite understand the system i, I mean i ran into that with mutants and masterminds right where i left my defenses very low because there was nothing that that made it abundantly clear that i needed to have eight defenses or it wasn't going to work and so I left them low, and then I got one-shotted, and I was like, well, that wasn't my character concept at all. I just built my character wrong. Cool, I'm going to go roll up a new character, guys. <laughs> like, You guys, good luck in that fight without me. <laughs> yeah, you didn't take defensive roll. Right. Or what actually happened was I didn't take alternate forms of my power, so I bought powers separately instead of taking them as alternate versions, which would have been free. Oh, so you spent way too many points and didn't have enough left for defenses. Exactly. And then also thought, oh, you know, eight is superhuman. I'm a human. Yeah. All my numbers were too low because I was going off of the descriptor mm-hmm. instead of the mathematical value. Uh, and then I wasted points building multiple powers that weren't strong enough instead of building alternate forms of a power that would have freed me up for defenses. So it was a total failure of system understanding. Yeah. You get into this situation, too, where you have, you know, a new player who the thing people always want to do is, you know, leap onto the chandelier and then swing across the room. But if you're playing a system where skill checks usually have about a 35% chance of success, that's a terrible idea. You're going to die. And the cost of falling off that chandelier yeah. is, you know, likely to be more than half your hit points. Right. Don't do that with 1500 XP in Dark Heresy 2nd Edition. Yeah. But you have to know that that's going to be a bad decision or else you're going to learn from doing. Right. Whereas like in Dungeon World, like that's just, that's an action that you take. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> You get a bonus because you described it. <laughs> right. You used the torch in Phoenix Dong Command parlance. Right. You know? Yeah. Uh, well, in Fate, yeah, you would invoke the aspect of a chandelier, and that would give you a bonus. Great. The system is set up for this, but, you know, grittier games aren't. There are a few caveats, though, because having system mastery can lead to a few bad habits. Sometimes it means that you don't think of new options. So if you're playing in a system where usually jumping on the chandelier is a bad idea, there might be situations where it's a great idea or it's a flavorful or interesting idea, but you just don't think of it because you've put that out of your mind. So when I was at Gen Con, I was playing in a game, a 5e game. There's an elemental monk, which we don't like because it's terrible. Worst monk possible. Yep. Yeah. But, you know, they're playing it fine. And we were fighting a water elemental. And instead of, you know, punching the water elemental, because that's what would have been the most effective thing to do with your magic fists, they try to use shape water to change the shape of the water elemental into something that that couldn't fight. That's a super cool idea. I know that 
as someone with system mastery over fifth edition, I know that the best thing to do is for you to punch it four times and probably kill it rather than stand there and go, okay, let me just move it into something that's easier to hit or is less offensive. Right. And of course, there aren't any rules for that. And this person doesn't know that there aren't any rules for that. So now they've asked the GM to like adjudicate something on the fly. They did a pretty good job of it. They're like, all right, I set it, I'll set a DC. You go for it. They tried it twice and both times it failed. So like it really sort of fell flat. But it's nice that they attempted that. And I think in a different situation, that would have been a lot more interesting or maybe even more effective. Yep. If uh, if you have that natural inkling like me of why are you doing something that's going to just require the DM to adjudicate, then you might be falling into rules lawyer syndrome, <laughs> <laughs> which is that just because the ruling isn't accurate doesn't make it bad or wrong, right? Like the at some point, as I said at the top, it's not just about playing the game the way the designers intended. Mm-hmm. It's not just the way the internet expects it when you tell your green text story. It's also about having fun at the table, right? And so if in that moment, attempting to apply sort of lateral thinking to that problem was more fun for the player and the GM is able to encourage that, great, <laughs> right? There's no loser here, except for maybe the rest of the party if you guys get wiped. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I would say that the best compliment to system mastery is a willingness to break those rules. You know, if you know the rules so well, then you can break them. It's like writing. Yeah, but you have to know the rules before you can go. You can break them in the right them. places. Right. Yeah. So we should talk a bit about the reputation that system mastery has for helping power gamers and people who like to play overpowered characters, partially because we're power gamers. Yeah, I mean, it's the same thing with with all power gaming, right? Is that you can break a game in order to keep other players from having fun, right? Or to make sure that you have the most fun. Right, or the best fun. (laughs) Or you can understand the rules so that you can help make the game fun for everybody, Mm -hmm. right? We can follow the rules in the book and your character can do the things that it wants to do well. Right, We don't have to worry about you falling off the chandelier and being bad at it because we made that an objective of your character. Right. When we played 4th edition several years ago, I built my character and two other characters. And they were effective. They did the thing that the player wanted them to do. Wasn't one of them work without me having to roll well? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> because she always rolled poorly. Steph only rolls well when she has to right so any sort of like regular skill rolls or at the beginning of a combat eh, she's gonna roll terribly so just ishan make me a character that's gonna work work even if i fail (laughs) so if you are a power gamer and you have a lot of system mastery and you're building a character just make sure that you're keeping a baseline of effectiveness you know and you might want to suggest to other players some easy options for them to maintain that baseline as well yeah hey avoid that trap option Right. Or, There's a better way to do that. Yeah, don't take the pistol grip. Take the recoil glove. Right. It's just better for you, and it's the same cost. Right. And as a GM, that actually makes my life easier because it makes sure that the characters are on a more equal footing. I don't have someone who is terrible at what they do and is getting shot all the time, and then someone who never gets hit. Yeah, especially when I'm trying to balance out encounters, and I have to account for this one character who can only you know flop around like Magikarp. <laughs> And this other character who is going to set everything on fire like Charizard. Mm-hmm. Pokemon. I don't understand. <laughs> Timely reference. <laughs> I, don't, I don't get any of that. Is that sports? That's all I know about Pokemon. <laughs> 
And as always, whenever we talk to power gamers or about power gamers, follow Wheaton's law. Don't be a dick. Yeah, use your powers for good. You know, you understand the system, so fill in the gaps in the party composition. If this is a system where someone needs to be the healer, guess what? That's you. Be the healer. Because you're going to be good at it, and you're going to be able to build something that doesn't only heal and can do other things and still have fun, rather than sticking some poor sod with the okay, I cure wounds again character. Did you hear that, Ishan? That's me being a dick. That sensor can only mean one thing. It's time to move on to the Character Creation Forge. But before we do that, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane, at Mundangerous, that's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan, at Evil Sans Carne, that's Malice minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show, at TPTCast. You can also email us, if you can't fit it into 140 characters, at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can also find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrillCast.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram, at Total Party Thrill. All right, so this week in the Character Creation Forge, we are talking about the polymorph fromage. So we should explain a bit. For those of you who don't know, fromage is French for cheese. Yeah, it also looks like fromage, which is why I thought it was a funny (laughs) visual pun. (laughs) So we're not making an ice wizard. (laughs) No. We are going to use all of the cheese of the polymorph spell for our wizard. Right. This was inspired by July's sage advice rules answers for D&D 5e. And there's one there that we really, really disagree with. That we hate so very, very much. So the question was, if a disintegrate spell reduces a half orc to zero hit points, can they then use their relentless endurance ability to keep themselves at one hit point? And then there was a follow-up question. What if a druid is in wild shape and they get hit with a disintegrate and reduce to zero hit points in both those instances do they turn to ash or do their abilities kick in right because the disintegrate spell specifies if you reduce your target to zero hit points they turn to ash so the ruling for both of these was they turn to ash yeah so the disintegrates turn to ash power or or effect triggers before any of the reaction effects of dropping to zero hit points such as a druid reverts its shape or a half or gains a hit point yeah and you know effect cues and last in first out aside these are just rulings that make everything less fun yeah <laughs> like i'm a 20th level druid i turn to a bird to fly away great disintegrate yeah <laughs> dead yeah <laughs> right wild shape just went from the most powerful ability to the worst ability right every spellcaster that has six level spells will have disintegrate it's a super good utility spell right it's actually like the only good six level spell <laughs> right. what else is gonna do <laughs> so that immediately made us think oh man polymorph combo right because polymorph when you're you're turned into a beast and when your beast form is reduced to zero hit points you then revert back into your original form but given this ruling, if you get disintegrated while you're a fish with four hit points... You're dead. And it doesn't matter what you were before. No, no. 200 hit points, 2,000 hit points. The Tarrasque. If you fail that polymorph, which, you know, granted, you've got legendary resistances and legendary saves and those types of things as, you know, high-level monsters do, but if you get around those resistances and saves and you wear down that creature, as soon as they're turned into a fish, they're gone. But... We figured killing something isn't the only cheese that we can use with polymorph, right? There has to be a better way to use polymorph than just killing things. There are a lot of fun options. 
So what's our build for this polymorph fromage mage? <laughs> it might seem strange at first. It is Divination Wizard 17, Fighter 2, Druid 1. <laughs> this is, I think, the weirdest build we've ever put together. Uh, it is. It's up there. <laughs> So Wizard 17, for obvious reasons, you want to be able to cast ninth level spells. If The goal is basically polymorph and then do terrible things to them while they're more vulnerable. While they're stuck in that form. Right. So you're going to, want, you're going to need high level spell slots. So you've got ninth level spells. We don't go transmuter, which is polymorph and disintegrate. And we don't go sorcerer, which gives you a lot of nice slots. We go divination wizard because you get the portent ability. You'll have two times per day you roll a d20 and then you can force someone else or you to use that d20 in place of a roll which means that if you get a low one you can force someone to fail a saving throw yep now fighter two is simply for action surge so you can cast two spells uh, in a single turn and druid one we'll get to in a little bit yeah (laughs) so if you roll well on your portents that's great you can make sure that you roll high on something if you roll low on your portent in the first round of combat, you can cast Polymorph on any enemy you want, use your portent, and force them to fail. Now they're a fish. Action Surge, Disintegrate, dead. Yep. And if they don't have legendary saves, they are dead. Just dead. It. That's it. Fun, fun game for that guy. <laughs> that was easy. So that means four times per day, right? Because Disintegrate is level six, so at level six, level seven, level eight, and level nine. Four times per day... You just kill a thing. Yep. You've got four polymorphs as well. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, sometimes it takes you two whole rounds to do it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So we've got the disintegrate problem. What else can we do with that polymorph? Because this is a very high-level oriented build, right? There's fun with Gesh. <laughs> yeah. So there's a, there's a theme that Gesh embodies, which are spells that have lingering effects that do not grant additional saves Mm -hmm. very often. So if you fail your initial save, you're going to be suffering its effect even after you change forms because the magic is is an effect. It's not a stat or ability change. Right, you don't shake it off when you revert to your normal form. And in fact, sometimes you're going to want to sort of pop that animal form because the enemy is more useful to you in their original form. You just polymorph them to lower their defenses. Right. So for example, if you turn your enemy into a puppy you could then have a gesh put on that puppy that he will always heal to you (laughs) because he is a loyal puppy and he wants to stay by your side and do nothing else right and so then you shoot your puppy of course right obviously uh and then he turns into your loyal henchman who used to be the bbeg (laughs) and if he tries to resist he takes 5d10 damage psychic so enjoy that another fifth level spell that requires a a bit more preparation is modify memory. So you can turn them into a beast and then you can describe to them what they should actually think happened rather than what did happen. Now, of course, they're a beast. They need to be able to understand you. So fortunately, we've got one level of druid for speak with animals. Yep. (laughs) So you can always speak to the creatures that you turn people into. Right. And I mean, it has a beast level of understanding, but... You know, you can do a lot of damage to someone's memory, even in beast terms. Yeah, or even, you didn't see nothing. Now, Ishan, there is a problem here. Modify memory is a concentration spell. Uh-oh, that means that polymorph will end as soon as you cast it. Well, it would, but we're not afraid of just a little <laughs> bit of cheese. We're going to go all the way. So make sure you grab that 7th level spell, Simulacrum. 
<laughs> so that you've got another caster who's waiting beside you to to finish off your concentration and effect. is fully specked out with those same spells comes with the exact same capabilities you do mm-hmm. now if you don't want to wait for seven level spells or you feel like simulacrum oh that is just a bridge too far well you can always just tag team with one of your other fellow spell casters in your party right polymorph is a really common spell yeah lots of people will be happy to take polymorph you just put on the finishing effect right, right? or you know when you see other people's finishing effects go hold on one second yeah let me yeah. make it a fish now do that yeah exactly so obviously level six there's disintegrate which is excellent level six also has flesh to stone which is a handy way of just petrifying your enemy forever yep it's another concentration spell right so that requires a simulacrum or help right but what is this stone fish on your desk um it's my greatest enemy <laughs> <laughs> did you catch it yep Caught it myself. Well, me and my me and my simulacrum. Right. At level seven, you get sequester, which is a lot of fun. This is actually a man. So many of these are my favorites, <laughs> but I love sequester so much. So sequester makes your target invisible, and it makes them undetectable via divination. So and and it allows you to just basically hide them away until a set of conditions are met, uh, in which they return, and they're held in timeless stasis for as long as necessary so if you set some unreachable conditions it's over <laughs> they just won't return or just set some very obvious conditions so you know exactly when they're coming back that could work too and of course they're going to show up where you put them yep so maybe put them in the volcano yeah and the condition is when the volcano erupts well if they take damage they do come out of it so well, that's why then you use flesh to stone. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Probably the best use of this is the eighth level dominate monster because the only condition that is better than dead is dominated. This one also requires a simulacrum because it's concentration as well. But turn them to a fish, dominate them, let them turn back into whatever they were before, and voila, you've got your own henchman. Yeah, yeah. You don't even have to do damage on that one. You can just stop concentrating on your polymorph and they won't even get another save Mm -hmm. now note that you can't use dominate person because the thing that you're actually casting the dominate on is going to be a beast yeah so it's a higher level move but still you get to control your own worst enemy (laughs) chain him to your will or at least the will of your simulacrum at ninth level power word kill yeah if you have less than 100 hit points you're dead well guess what a goat does yep (laughs) (laughs) I mean, a T-Rex does. You could be very intimidating for those last few minutes, BBEG. I don't care. And of course, you can chain your polymorphs from polymorph to true polymorph. Okay, so we're we're literally adding every last piece of cheese in the book. Yeah. <laughs> so another way to turn them into a fancy paperweight, you just shape change them using your polymorph. They just become an object now. If you concentrate for an hour, it doesn't come back. Yeah, this one requires double concentration, so you'll need a simulacrum as well. But it's really worth it to have that literal tiny paperweight of your greatest enemy. Yeah, this is the way you end every campaign, is with a paperweight. (laughs) You go ahead and take that tombstone for for good memories. All right, Ishan, how did your cheesy polymorph fromage come to be? So we're going to come up with character ideas, but let's just... Let's be very clear. Don't play this character. No, do not play this character at all. <laughs> this character is a terrible character. 
DM should ban this. You should. You're a bad player if you play this character. Yeah, we only built it to showcase how bad the ruling is and a little bit of system mastery. Yeah. So my polymorph fromage was actually a cheesemonger. Okay. He began life selling cheese and and realized that he wasn't the best at it, but he still wanted to be the most successful, and so he started figuring out ways to surreptitiously bump off the competition. He's kind of a weird and, and creepy guy, so you know he started studying magic. So they started using polymorph to take out the competition at, at crucial parts of the cheese making process. You know, if you wow, if you, if you turn them into a pig while they are inside uh, their their own larder, what's going to happen? They're going to destroy their entire stock. <laughs> but you didn't do it, and there's no evidence that you did anything. A pig rooted around inside the larder. That, that's a shame. That's a terrible shame. It's also a shame that I get to double my prices because the the supply of cheese has dropped. Wow. Just, wow. One thing leads to another, and, you know, suddenly... Your parents are dead. You become a murder hobo. <laughs> you start disintegrating cheeses instead of polymorphing, and you go, wait a minute. Wow. Okay. Interesting. I mean, not good, but interesting. Don't play that character either. What about your polymorph fromage so my polymorph fromage learned from the best he suffered this fate once he was killed by an evil villain who used this very combo on him the polymorph and disintegrate an, uh, an evil fromager perhaps your own fromager <laughs> yeah so uh, you know an evil wizard did this to him uh he was reincarnated by a druid and okay. this is his soul retained memory right his sort of reason for being his reason that he even came back through reincarnation was to avenge this <laughs> and he will do it using the the evil tools that were used against him that's terrible it's awful <laughs> do not play that character either <laughs> all right if you still want to support the show after that total mess of a segment the easiest way to do that is to leave us a five-star review on iTunes. If you're willing to help us out, we'll read your five-star review on the air. You can also find us on Stitcher. It's like a Pandora for podcasts. If you like or favorite us there, the algorithm will help other people find us. And reminder, we have a contest going right now, so if you'd like to be entered to win a copy of Pathfinder Horror Adventures, it's a great time to leave a five-star review. And just make sure that you send us your contact info so we can contact you if you win. One such entry comes from us all the way from Norway. This is Just Plain Brilliant, five stars, by Curvestole. One of the best podcasts on this subject, in my opinion. A great inspiration for GMs, DMs, storytellers. Keep up the excellent work. Thanks so much. And I hope you're having a better summer in Norway than we are in New York. <laughs> it could not be worse. <laughs> I mean, it's closer to the Arctic, so literally melting is occurring. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Uh. But on a weekly basis, I, I have to walk in a subway. So melting is occurring to me as well. It's true. And our trains are much, much worse here. That's yeah. All right. What do we have planned for next week's episode? We'll be talking about plot hooks. And in the character creation forge? We're building the knife fighter. Well, that's it for episode 56 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we've lived up to our name. But either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening. You don't need power attack for a minus 5 plus 10 damage if there's extra power attack that's just minus 6 plus 12, right? Like, that's not a better choice. You, you just always do that.
That's a bad example. Extra power attack. Uh, high octane attack. <laughs> <laughs> I'm cutting it. Powerful or attack. Right. 